Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we lift up your name. You are the living God who speaks. You're the living God who sees. You're the living God who hears. You're the living God who wants to relate to us. And so, Lord, we ask that you be present to relate to us, to speak, and may we respond with the worship of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I've lived in Florida for five years, and um, street racing was pretty popular in Florida and may still be very popular now. Um, When I lived there, I drove a Honda Prelude, which is, if you don't know what it is, it's a Honda sports car, and, um, and I quite enjoyed driving fast, I have to admit, and you may have heard me say that. And so I was literally a walking, driving Asian stereotype, driving my little rice burner around town. Now, let me tell you, though, that I got pulled over far more times than I thought I would for no good reason or getting pulled over maybe for a good reason, and yet seemingly with such an overreaction like I was some street punk or gangster or something. And so it was uh, you know, pretty sobering to kind of experience um, something that I know many in this country have experienced all throughout their lives. And I'd get stopped maybe and they say, sir, do you know why I stopped you? And I go, no. It's like, where are you going? To the seminary down the street. And uh, kind of ironic, getting pulled over as a seminary student who lived just down the street from where I got pulled over maybe. And um, it certainly is nothing like, again, what many, many people have gone through in this life uh, here in the States, getting pulled over for no good reason. And... I can't imagine what it would be like for many African Americans in this country where they've kind of had that experience day after day, week after week, year after year, and the, the kind of skepticism it would create towards authority figures as a reason, uh, as a result. I think just in general, in American culture today, there is just a general skepticism towards authority figures and any structure of hierarchy, hierarchy. and there's certainly a a need for some of that, right? There's a need for a level of skepticism because we've seen abuses uh, within institutions from authority figures. It's right for us to question some of that, to seek reform um, from institutions, from authority figures when there's wrong being done. And at the same time, we have to recognize when we take that kind of skepticism too far that it does also have a negative effect on our society, on our families, on our, just the way we relate to one another. And really, this particular commandment today, the fifth commandment, addresses this idea of we live in a world created by God where we are created as image bearers with a desire both for hierarchy but also equality. That those things are, in a sense, intention, but it's never one or the other. And so let me just... Well, we just heard the text read, but when we, when we look at any of the commandments, and you might have noticed this, we, we often look at first the, the narrow meaning of the commandment and then the broader meaning. And the broader meaning is always going to include the narrow, more narrow meaning. And so, honor your father and mother sounds rather obvious, okay? It's about my relationship with my parents. And yet, um, it's not just about your relationship with your parents, although it is about your relationship with your parents. It's about more than that. And so, the Westminster Shorter Confession, question number 64, asks this. It goes through all the commandments. Question 64 says, what is required in the fifth commandment? 
And the answer is the fifth commandment requires the preserving the honor and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors, inferiors, and equals. Now it's older language. No one wants to be thought of as superior or inferior, really. Um, but I think if you try to remember, it was written in a certain context um, a long time ago that we kind of get the point. There, there is a hierarchy in the world. You can't get away from the fact that there are policemen with that kind of authority, that there are bosses at work, that you do have parents and they have a level of authority over you. And when we look at scripture to look at the broader meaning of father and mother, we see in very different places how it is not just about your, uh, the parents that you're born with, but also about more than that. So I'm just going to run through a, a few verses just to quickly illustrate that um, father and mother is, is, is also used in the sense of authority figures in general. So Genesis 45.8 says this, so then it was not you who sent me here, but God, he made me father to Pharaoh. Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. So here we see ruler as, um, as a father, or fa- you know, the term father used for a ruler. In 2 Kings 5.13, it says this, Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So we see here, military chief as father. In 2 Kings 2.12, It says this, Elisha said this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha Elisha saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. So we see a prophet described as father. 1 Corinthians 4.15 says, Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. So we see here church leaders as fathers. And then 1 Timothy 5.1 says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. And so again, here's an example of an older men as fathers. And so we see again here, just this term father in scripture, is, it can be used broadly to mean any kind of authority figure in our life. And so again, we have to recognize that as we live and exist in this world, that we live as people who live under authority, as people with authority, and we live as people who are equals with others. That that is the way the world works. And so we're going to be looking at these ideas in those three categories, and all of us exist in all three categories. That we are to honor those whose authority we are under, that we are to rule benevolently as those with authority, rule benevolently those under our authority, and we are to dignify those who are our equals. Honor those whose authority we are under, rule benevolently those under our authority, and dignify those who are our equals. And so another way to put it is, I believe as an individual existing in the world, in society, in church, in work, that I am someone who existentially wants to know how to follow well, how to lead well, and how to come alongside others well. I think we all feel that. We recognize that we have those roles in our life. So just a simple question to begin getting your brains churning. How do you do when you're asked to follow? Do you follow well? Or do you kind of shake your fist at those who call you to follow? How do you do when you're in a position of leadership? 
Do you lead well? Are you power hungry and get, gets to your head? Do you abdicate that kind of authority when given to you? How do you do as a peer to others? Which, again, this is, we heard in the shorter catechism that this is included as well. We don't often think about that when we think honor your father and mother. But also, how, how do you treat those who are your equals? And we'll look at that as well. We may often struggle with one or two or maybe all of those in our lives. Um, but I think it's a reality that we have to face that those are the roles that we have in our life. And it's not surprising as we move in the Ten Commandments from the first four commandments, which really focus more on our relationship with God, to the last six commandments, which focus on our relationship with people. And particularly this fifth commandment, again, is, you know, we look at it too narrowly. We think, oh, is it just about family here? And again, I feel like I've illustrated, it's not just about family. It is about how we relate in this world. And I think, therefore, it is, there's, a, there's a reason for why it is placed where it is after the first four commandments describing our relationship with God at the beginning of describing our relationship with people. It does, I think, show also the importance of family and how God created the family as, as a foundation for our society. But at the same time, it's not just about family. Again, it's about how God has structured his whole creation and how we're to relate to each other. And again, it points to this desire in all of us that we've been created with a desire for hierarchy, but also equality. Um, John Frame, again, I'm quoting him again, but he says this about this commandment. This is the basic principle of government in scripture. It rejects both egalitarianism and authoritarianism. It does not regard authority as demeaning, but as a blessing. It does not claim that everybody is the same in gifts or status, but neither does it allow authority to become oppression. Right? So often it's easy to take the extremes. Right? And we can see that in governmental systems uh, throughout the world tend towards one extreme or the other. And here we see the biblical view on it is that those two things are always to be held in tension, that that is the way God created this world. And it's not surprising to us, right? Because as Christians, we at least always recognize God as an authority over us. That we recognize that that is in a part of the essence of who he is and our relationship to him. So we see that at the same time that human relationships reflect the divine relationship. That even within the Trinity, within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit contains authority, submission, and equality. And so just as the Trinity contains these three things, so our society, our humankind contains those things as well. But let's kind of, that's kind of like the setup, but let's dig deeper into what does it mean to, to honor, to rule, and to dignify our equals. So let's jump into the first idea of honoring those whose authority we are under. I think some synonyms we can use to help us understand what does honor mean. We could use words like reverence, submission, gratitude. And I'd like to ask us this question, right? What keeps us from showing honor, reverence, submission, gratitude to our parents, to our bosses, to our church leaders, to our government leaders, to our president, to our God? What keeps us from giving those authority figures, the honor that God calls us to in this life. 
some things that pop to my mind immediately when I ask that question of myself is, the first thing is simply, when I disagree with them, when I disagree with these authority figures, then it's hard to honor them, to submit, to show gratitude, to revere, and it points to a pride that I might have. Another thing that might keep me from honoring authority figures in my life is their flaws. I mean, I've worked at several churches and worked under senior pastors, and it's really easy to point out flaws in leaders. I don't know if you've experienced that from either end, but it's just easy when you're the young assistant pastor to be like, oh, the senior pastor's doing this badly and this badly and this badly. And then you get into the position of being the guy and you realize, oh, this is what it's like to be the guy where the buck stops. And that's true, again, if, if you're a parent in this room, you understand that the buck, the buck stops with you in parenting your children. There's, you can turn to God, obviously, but you are the primary caregiver for that child. So our disagreement with authority figures, our own pride, seeing flaws in our, in our authority figures, even God, like we can perceive flaws in God. There are no flaws in God, but we can perceive God to have flaws. We can disagree with how God does things, how he runs this world. We can think we know better than God or other authority figures. I think we see this very clearly in the last, I don't know, 10 years, last decade in our country, about the country's relationship with the presidency. Right? It feels like such a swing we've gone through. We've gone from being under the leadership of President Obama that some absolutely could not imagine showing respect, honor to, to President Trump, where others feel like they absolutely cannot show respect or honor to him. And maybe even as I say that, you, you, some of you might even have an internal reaction of like, well, I'm completely justified in not wanting to respect or honor this or that president. Right? That's just so human of a reaction in us when we see our, the disagreements we have, the flaws we see in our leaders and how we probably know better than them. I wonder what it would be like for us to take seriously treating the authority figures in our life with respect. Because when we don't, we forget that ultimately God is the one who's in control. And we forget that our leaders are also made in the image of God. It's very easy to objectify our leaders, to make them not human, and to just tear them down. Treating with respect, of course, doesn't mean blind obedience. It doesn't mean having to agree with them. It doesn't mean not seeking reform in whatever institution we're talking about. And I, I talk to people who struggle in their relationship with parents about this a lot, because, again, this is the most narrow meaning. I would say you must show honor, gratitude, and love to your parents. You must find ways to do that. God calls you to it, commands you to it. But that doesn't mean that you have to do exactly what they say. I'm an Asian, and this is completely fitting of an Asian stereotype. Just because I'm an Asian doesn't mean I have to be a doctor if my parents want me to be. 
And they might feel very strongly about it. My parents didn't want me to be a doctor. I did think I could only be a doctor, lawyer, or businessman. And so I've really bucked the system here. Because I'm so rebellious. I became a pastor. We have to show honor and gratitude and love to our parents. We don't have to blindly obey them. We don't have to not bring up our disagreements or our struggles with them. In fact, I think honoring is all, being honest is a part of honoring as well and treating with respect. It's more about the way we go about it that shows whether we are treating people with respect or not. So when we disagree, we must disagree with, with respect, with compassion, recognizing that everyone has a story Our leaders have a story. Even people with authority over us that we disagree with, that we dislike, or maybe even despise, that they too have a story. And this is so hard because I know that some of the people who react most strongly against authority figures are the ones who have been most wounded by authority figures. And so in that sense, what God calls us to can be very, very difficult. You want me to show honor to this authority figure that has repeatedly hurt me and wounded me? But that is what God calls us to as we exist in this world that is broken. Again, although the broadest meaning of this commandment is our relationship with all authority figures and how we honor them, but I think it is good to start with the most narrow meaning in this commandment, which is our relationship with our parents. What is our relationship with our parents like? And it's such a good place to start because in some ways that relationship is the most personal and the most formative in our relationship. It is the relationship with an authority figure that we are most familiar with compared to any other authority figure, generally speaking. And I say that really from a very personal place, recognizing that part of my journey as a Christian has been God bringing me from a relationship with my parents where I felt deeply wounded by them to a place in time where I would say my relationship with my parents is better than it's ever been. And there's been tremendous growth in our relationship through the many, many years. That's not to say it's amazing that we're so close and intimate, but I'm glad that there's been growth and change in that relationship. So again, how do we honor those authority figures that do have authority over us? Even that who have wounded us. How do we honor them in the way that God calls us to? Well, let's flip that now, right? Let's flip it to those idea of like how, when we have been given authority, how do we rule benevolently? And I even question whether to use the word rule because I think even that we can be like, well, I don't rule over anyone. But that's really a very biblical idea. When God created humankind, he said, go, rule over this world on my behalf as representatives of me. Now, I have to, word the, I have to add the word benevolently because when you hear the word rule, you often think, someone who is abusing their authority rather than using it for the sake of others. 
And so to rule benevolently, I would say, another way to say it is to rule lovingly, to rule sacrificially, to rule protectively, to rule tenderly. And so what keeps us from ruling in that way? Sometimes it's low self-esteem. We just, we can't imagine ourselves as someone who has a responsibility to rule over others. Sometimes it's our own impatience or anger or fear or selfishness. We often think, when we think about ruling or maybe leadership, we think, well, I just don't have the right personality for that. I just don't have the right gifting for that. But so many people are put in positions to rule, to have the responsibility to rule. And so ruling doesn't really have to do with having the right gifting. It's just having to do with being given the responsibility by God. God puts all of us in positions to rule, to have responsibility over others. The only truly carefree days are the really little ones amongst us. When you're an infant, when you're a toddler, where you're just like, I'm completely dependent on everyone. I have no responsibilities. My job is to eat, sleep, and poop. That's it. Even the older children amongst us, they often have responsibilities. They could have responsibilities at school, as a school monitor. They could have siblings that they have to help care for and have that responsibility. So you could think you are like so low on the totem pole of life that God still puts you in positions to rule and therefore to rule, a call to rule benevolently. How will you wield that responsibility well in a way that honors God? Will we get power hungry as we try to do it or will we abdicate it out of fear of doing it poorly? As a pastor, I've been told many times not to use Lord of the Rings as an illustration anymore, but I'm going to break that rule. Um, So if you don't know anything about Lord of the Rings, always try to keep in mind that not everyone is a Lord of the Rings nerd like me. But so the hobbits are the unlikely heroes in Lord of the Rings. They are like humans, except they don't grow beyond the size of a child. And... They love their comfort, they love their home, they love their region, the Shire. They don't want to have to do with anything else in the world. They just want their creaturely comforts. They don't want adventure, they don't want responsibility in the broader world. And so there's this theme in the Lord of the Rings of the dignity and responsibility given to the least among the races in the world of Lord of the Rings and Middle-earth and about a theme of how the hobbits learn to rule benevolently, learn to take responsibility in the world that that they're in. Now, my favorite character in Lord of the Rings is Gandalf, because I think Gandalf is just a beautiful picture of an authority figure. He has this beautiful picture of containing strength that God calls for in a leader, in an authority figure, but also incredible tenderness as an authority figure as well. By comparison, Aragorn is the obvious authority figure, but he's kind of flat as a character in in that sense. He doesn't really show that same kind of strength and tenderness other than, you know, being able to fight really well and then still be tender at the same time. But Gandalf, you may not know, but in the beginning of the, the movie, he has this interaction with Bilbo, who, who is the one who has the evil ring in his possession. And Bilbo and his nephew Frodo and the creature Gollum are the only ones who, 
well, in this story, so in the Lord of the Rings story, who hold the ring and know what it's like. And Gandalf finds out that Bilbo has this evil ring. And he, he understands what this, how evil this ring is. And he's trying to get Bilbo to let go of it before Bilbo goes off on his adventure. And Bilbo, of course, get, is this, has this flash of being corrupted by the ring where he's like, this is my precious, I will not leave it. And there's this incredible moment where we see the righteous anger of Gandalf where he just flares up and he goes, Bilbo Baggins, do not take me as a conjurer of cheap tricks. I'm not trying to rob you. And like the whole room goes dark, he becomes big and, you know, Bilbo gets scared. Right, but then he flips immediately after that. His face softens and he says with the greatest tenderness imaginable, I'm trying to help you. And we see that strength and tenderness in just a brief 30 seconds in this movie. And it's something he shows and lives out to the people around him. And so later on in the story when Gandalf is in the mines of Moria with Frodo and Frodo and him are talking about Gollum. Gollum, this creature who also possessed the ring at some point. Gandalf knows what this ring is about and how it corrupts any person who has possession of it. And he's trying to teach Frodo not to so easily judge those who he thinks are despicable and worthy of death. To be able to show compassion even to a creature like Gollum who seems so yuck and lowly and evil. (coughs) To understand that even someone Frodo at that point despises may serve a greater purpose in the larger scheme of things. Frodo says, it's a pity Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance. And Gandalf says, and again, great tenderness, pity. It's pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death. Some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play in it for good or evil before this is over. The pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. Gandalf's trying to teach Frodo what it means to be a leader of compassion, to not become the judge over people. And we don't see this in the movie, but if you read the book, we see this is something that Bilbo, not Bilbo, Frodo passes on at the end of the book, a chapter that no one ever remembers, but it's called The Scouring of Shire, where Frodo is now the one teaching other hobbits about how to relate to the people who have destroyed the Shire. And he tries to teach them that these people don't be so quick to judge those who you think are despicable and have destroyed your land, to be compassionate to even those. And so we hear as Christians, right, there's only one God, there's only one judge. How do we, in whatever context we are in, rule 
benevolently, rule with strength and tenderness, sacrificially, lovingly, protectively, but yet to be very clear that we have that responsibility given to us and not to think ourselves too lowly to take on such a responsibility. How can we lead with strength and tenderness wherever God has placed us? Lastly, there's this category of our relationship with our equals. How can we dignify those who are equals? Again, we don't think of it as much. Maybe we just think of it as, how do I be a good friend to others? But I think this is, a, this is kind of a category that's not talked about enough. I think we often actually struggle quite a lot with our peers. Because our peers are the ones we most easily compare ourselves to. And so when we're in the situation of walking through life with our friends or our peers or our equals or our co-workers, we so often play this comparison game with them. And so I think to dignify other ways of putting that is, is to give worth to those people, to recognize the worth in them, to communicate that worth to them, to delight in their gifts that they have, to have them hear words of affirmation from us of what good we see in them, what gifts we see in them. And then maybe even hardest of all, to truly rejoice in their advancement in life, to rejoice in their flourishing. That's hard because sometimes that advancement is maybe at our cost. Maybe we were both vying for the same role, the same position. One of us won it and one of us lost it. How do we rejoice with our peers when they advance, when they get ahead of us, so to speak, and we feel left behind? And it points to how when we're called by God to dignify our equals, that a lot of things come into play with that. Our insecurities, our envy, our self-focus. And God calls us, again, to dignify those who are equals. I think in all of these categories, it's pride that can kind of keep us from doing that. And pride not just in the sense of thinking ourselves better than others, but pride in the sense of self-focus. And C.S. Lewis describes this so well. And so I'll read a, a quote from him. He says, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or, you, or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. That's so hard. It just takes the transformative power of the Holy Spirit in us to take our eyes off of ourself and put them on God and to ask Him to transform and change us in a way that we can honor those who have authority over us, to rule benevolently over those who we have authority and to dignify those who are equals. 
And we're going to point it to Jesus. I mean, it's so amazing to me in preparing for this sermon series to see how Jesus is truly the fulfillment of all of these commandments in every little jot and detail of it. Jesus, first of all, of course, forgives us for the ways in which we fail to honor, in which we fail to rule benevolently, in which we fail to dignify our eagles, uh, equals. Jesus forgives our pride and our self-focus. But he's also the one who perfectly lived that out his days on earth, that he perfectly honored his Father in heaven, and yet also honored those while he lived on earth. His parents he honored, though he was God himself. He perfectly ruled benevolently and he perfectly dignified other human equals. And really it's just this amazing sign of God's love, of Christ's love, that he would make himself equal with us as the God who took on human flesh to come into this world and that God now considers Christ's perfect righteousness, his perfection in, in honoring and ruling and dignifying and that he considers that righteousness ours through faith in him. Though we fall short of honoring, ruling, benevolently and dignifying We are perfect in the sight of God, acceptable in the sight of God as as a result of Christ. And we even see how perfectly Christ fulfills this in the names and the roles that he's been given. We know so well Jesus as suffering servant, that he was the one who suffered for our sake. And we heard it read earlier in Philippians, these words, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And we hear in Isaiah 53, how he was crushed for our sins. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. How incredible it is that Jesus would submit himself, that God himself in Jesus Christ would submit himself to that point for our sake so that we could be restored to him. We have no greater example of submission than that, that Christ would do that for us. How can we not then honor those who have authority over us when we see that our Lord, our God, has submitted himself for our sake? Yet we recognize the only picture we have of him is not Christ on the cross, but we have a picture of Jesus as King of Kings, The God-man who raised from the dead to defeat the power of sin. Revelation 17, 14 says this, They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. He is King of kings. He is our King. And so, just as... We see him rule us benevolently, protectively, sacrificially, lovingly. And so we can love and rule benevolently in the same way. Again, even if you're just a child in this room and you have a sibling to care for, you can do so following the example 
of our King of Kings. Yet Christ, the God-man, also is our brother and our friend. Hebrews 2.11 says this, Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. We can rightly call Jesus our brother, our friend, because he became incarnate for our sake. We're created with this desire for hierarchy and equality. We are created to follow, to lead, to dignify our equals and walk alongside others. Again, we find this desire perfectly fulfilled in Jesus himself. Our eyes are turned again and again to Jesus and how we are found in him and how we are made perfect and acceptable in God's eyes because of him. So it is through Jesus that we find redemption not only for ourselves but for our society. He makes all relationships right. And it is through faith in Him that we are empowered to then live rightly in the context of the structure of this society. Jesus, who was far above all in all, the King of Kings, became the suffering servant so that He might call us brothers and sisters for all eternity. Servant, king, and friend, he will be to us for all time. And so again, Jesus empowers you to go out into the world to honor those whose authorities you are under, to rule benevolently those who you have authority over, to dignify those who you walk alongside. Let us pray that as a people of God, we can do that through the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us.